Welcome back, friends. As a reminder, I put many of the news articles, pictures, and other items of interest from each episode on the Chicago History Podcast Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. Check us out on whatever your preferred social media is, and give us a follow, please. And now... In May of 1970, those driving past Wrigley Field were greeted with an unusual sight, a Native American teepee surrounded by smaller tents and groups of people. This was just the beginning of the Native American protests in Chicago of the 1970s. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Before we get to the 1970s, we need to briefly discuss the role of Native Americans in the origins of Chicago. The area we know as Chicago is located on the ancestral lands of various indigenous tribes, primarily the Ojibwa, Odawa, and the Potawatomi nations, often referred to as the Council of the Three Fires, who resided here and used the area as a trading post. For everyone thinking, wasn't Chicago named for an Indian word meeting stinky onion? Let me just say it has been hotly debated and pretty well debunked. Moving on. Diseases, warfare, and European expansion into the area caused Native American numbers to decline by the early 1800s. And after the War of 1812 and a series of treaties, most notably in 1831 and 1833, most of the Native American population that had inhabited Chicago moved west of the Mississippi River or north into Wisconsin and Canada. In Tribune reporter Ron Grossman's 2012 flashback article called 15 Historic Minutes, he writes of the 1835 meeting with the remaining Potawatomis in Chicago to receive their final payment from the U.S. government for agreeing to move westward. 500 warriors showed up in full regalia, including tomahawks, in a long procession through the rebuilt Fort Dearborn, the site of a horrible battle years before. Judge D. Caton an eyewitness described the event in a lecture years later, saying, It was the last war dance ever performed by the natives on the ground where now stands this great city, though how many preceded it no one can tell. They appreciated that it was the last on their native soil, that it was a sort of funeral ceremony of old associations and memories. I realize this may seem like a rushed version of history, and I mean no disrespect to anyone listening, but in order to get to today's topic, I need to bypass specifics of such events such as the battle at Fort Dearborn, although I'll likely circle back to that dark time in Chicago's history in a future episode. By 1860, Chicago, with a population of 109,260, had six Native Americans living in the city. By 1890, Chicago had a population of 
99,850, and its native population had grown to 14. When your entire group is represented by 14 people, if one or two families move away without more moving in, that number can suddenly drop, as it did in 1900. When Chicago reached nearly 1.7 million people, only eight of those counted as Native Americans. With numbers so small, creating a feeling of community in this big city would have been impossible. Even 40 years later, when the population of Chicago in 1940 was nearly 3.4 million, the Native American population was only 274. While more organizations were being formed in support of the Native Americans of the area, things were still scattered in the community. Between 1940 and 1950, the Indian population of Chicago rose, according to census returns, from 274 to 775. This growth reflected veterans returning from World War II and settling in the city. The big influx was still a few years away. By 1952, the Truman administration enacted a new voluntary relocation effort coordinated by Dylan Meyer, the Commissioner of Indian Affairs. Meyer based the American Indian relocation process after the same one he used when he oversaw the relocation of Japanese Americans during the Japanese American internment program of World War II. Native Americans from reservations could, as it was completely voluntary, relocate to big cities like Chicago with the promise of housing, training, and job placement. While this may seem like a good thing, behind the scenes in many sessions of Congress, bills are being proposed that would abolish reservations altogether. In 1953, the Senate and House approved a resolution calling for the termination of special relations between the U.S. government and Indian tribes. Two reservations were indeed terminated, the Menominee in Wisconsin and the Klamath in Oregon. The promotional booklets designed to entice Native Americans to move to large cities like Chicago promised big city paradise but what the Native Americans who agreed to relocation found was substandard housing in not-so-great neighborhoods, training given on outdated machinery and skills that they could not bring back to their reservations. Filio Nash, who was Commissioner of Indian Affairs from 1961 to 1966, was quoted in Brian C. Hosmer's 2010 book, Native Americans and the Legacy of Harry S. Truman, as stating, quote, Myers' relocation program was essentially a one-way bus ticket from rural to urban poverty. On September 7, 1953, the All Tribes American Indian Center, later shortened to American Indian Center, was established in Chicago, originally at 411 North LaSalle Street, formed in response to the growing needs of a rapidly expanding local American Indian population and to help Native American families cope with the transition from reservation to urban life. According to the AIC website, it remains the oldest urban-based Native membership community center in the United States. 
The American Indian Center was not in great financial shape early on and suffered from internal squabbling in those early days, but still managed to bring together 200 Indians from 42 tribes every Sunday. A dance club was formed that performed in Chicago and in nearby Midwest cities, later appearing on TV, in parades, and at schools. It should be noted that the growth caused by relocation was pretty unprecedented. In 1960, there were 3,344 Native Americans in Chicago, and by 1970, that number was 6,575. A large percentage of Native Americans who moved to Chicago settled in the uptown neighborhood, which was not in great shape back then. In the 40s and 50s, there was an influx of workers from the South who came to Chicago looking for better employment opportunities, many of them settling in uptown. Adding the growing Native American population to the area strained local resources and made finding work difficult for all. A survey of Indians living in Uptown in 1967 showed 30% of them worked for daily pay organizations, which they apparently didn't mind as it allowed them the opportunity to take the sporadic day off to visit their reservations. While they were often better educated than other job applicants, unemployment among Native Americans was twice as high, according to Info I Read. Once a job was found, there was the desire to quickly move on to a better job, which made employers reluctant to hire Native American applicants at all for fear they would not stick around. While the American Indian Center did much to help unite and foster the Native American community in the late 60s, There were some who did not feel the center represented all Indians in Chicago, particularly the young and poor. According to James B. Legrand's book, Indian Metropolis, Native Americans in Chicago, 1945-1975, in December of 1969, a group of young people established the Native American Committee, or NAC, Founders Michael Chosa and Stephen Fastwolf, as well as others in NAC, were particularly interested in education. Legrand writes that what distinguished the Native American Committee from its counterparts was the willingness and often eagerness to participate in direct action protests, with some of the members even taking college classes on the protest movements. Next stage confrontations at Northwestern University and even the local Bureau of Indian Affairs office in support of other Native American protests occurring around the country. On May 5, 1970, a 35-year-old single Menominee mother of six named Carol Warrington was evicted from her Lakeview apartment for failure to pay rent. Warrington claimed the conditions in her building on North Seminary near Wrigley Field were very poor, and withholding rent was the only way to pressure the landlord into fixing the problems. Chosa and Nat came to Warrington's aid and helped her get back her possessions that had been removed from the apartment. They then set up a large ceremonial teepee they borrowed from the American Indian Center at the corner of Seminary and Waveland Avenue on the north side of Wrigley Field. In a show of solidarity, between 30 and 60 additional Native Americans joined Warrington and her children with smaller tents. Students at Chicago's DePaul University donated two portable toilets and $300, about $2,000 in today's money, 
to the group, but the city as a whole remained cold to the demands for proper housing. After two days, NAC founder Stephen Fastwolf led most of the members in leaving the protest, feeling that they had made their point. Others decided to stay in the protest and split from NAC to form the Chicago Indian Village, CIV, led by Michael Chosa. In the following weeks, Chosa and CIV focused on protesting the poor housing conditions experienced by many Indians in Chicago. Siv issued a manifesto declaring, quote, war on the slum conditions in and near the uptown area, end quote. They also demanded local politicians force landlords to repair properties within 60 days of receiving notice. Any slumlords that failed to comply should be fined and even have their property seized, according to the manifesto. At the Wrigley Field teepee sit-in, some members were arrested for disorderly conduct for loudly beating their drum late at night. Civ leader Michael Chosa used this opportunity to again publicize his group and their demands. Quote, We will stay on this land, he pledged, until the city does something about our housing programs. A week later, more members were arrested after neighbors again complained about the noise, Chosa alleged the police beat a young Indian boy they believed had thrown rocks at them. Two months after the protest at Wrigley began, members moved to a slightly larger privately owned parking lot near the original spot with the permission of the parking lot's owner. The owner soon became frustrated with the growing numbers of those camped out and the problem of litter generated by the group. Chosa and his group were polarizing in the Indian community. Many felt the camp was an embarrassment and that Native Americans should feel ashamed for participating. Mayor Richard J. Daly and other city officials wanted to resolve this issue or at least make it go away. Apparently, two months of bad press around Wrigley, not so great. Daly appointed Deaton Brooks to meet with Chosa, who by then had increased his demands, now demanding an entire housing complex for Indians so they could all stay together. As much as the city tried to work with Chosa, he was resistant and, some would say, defiant toward the efforts. We'll be right back. Are you a Caribbean American? Are you looking for a podcast that truly speaks to your culture and identity? Look no further than Carry On Friends, the ultimate destination for all things Caribbean American, hosted by me, Carrie Ann. Dive deep into topics such as culture, heritage, and everyday life through the unique lens of the Caribbean American experience. You'll walk away feeling more connected to your roots. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American experience. Your Caribbean American community awaits. A little background on Michael Chosa. He was born in Wisconsin's Lac du Flambeau Reservation to a large Chippewa family in 1936, living briefly in Chicago as a young man before he served in the Army and then traveled west in 1964. 
Joseph became interested in labor organizing. He worked in California's Lemon Groves, organizing the primarily Hispanic workforce there. To protest poor working conditions and low wages, Chosa convinced workers to climb into the lemon trees and pull the ladders up with them. They then refused to work until the employers agreed to their terms. By 1969, he was back in Chicago. Continuing their protests, in June of 1971, Chosa and approximately 40 Native Americans took over the abandoned Belmont Harbor Nike missile site, demanding the area be set aside for 200 housing units and a school for 500 Indian children. That's right, Belmont Harbor missile site. Here's a fun bit of Chicago history. We'll get back to the Native American protests in just a moment. The Chicago area was once home to 22 Nike missile bases, including three near the lakefront. In 1953, with growing Cold War paranoia in the U.S. and fears of the Soviets coming over the North Pole and Canada to drop bombs on Chicago, the U.S. Army built 80 by 80-foot reinforced concrete bunkers to store missiles as a defense. In addition to Belmont Harbor, just south of Diversity, there were missile sites in Burnham Park and Jackson Park near the lake. In the suburbs, towns such as Skokie, Addison, Arlington Heights, Naperville, Homewood, Vernon Hills, and others also had missile sites. In his book, Rings of Supersonic Steel, an Introduction and Sight Guide, Air Defenses of the United States, authors Mark Morgan and Mark A. Burhau detail the history of more than 300 Nike missile sites across the U.S. The book claims that by the mid-1950s, there were more than 600 Nike Ajax missiles in the Chicago area. As the Ajax missile was designed to intercept a single bomber, it was later replaced by the Nike Hercules missile, which had the ability to destroy multiple aircraft at once with a nuclear-tipped warhead. As the Hercules missiles did not have the capability to shoot down other missiles, the system became obsolete quickly, especially after the Soviets developed their first intercontinental ballistic missile, also called ICBM, in 1959. As the Soviet ICBM could travel upwards of 3,000 miles and couldn't be shot out of the air by the Nike missiles, why have them? By the mid-1960s, the government started to dismantle the missile sites, and by the early 70s, most were gone, paved over, turned into parks, or utilized in other ways. Naperville's Nike Park and Nike Sports Complex were not named for the sports apparel company. That was where the Nike missile base was in Naperville. After two weeks at the abandoned Belmont Harbor Nike missile site, Chicago police evicted Chosa and those on the land. Chosa and his followers then marched to one of the city's wealthiest churches in one of its wealthiest neighborhoods, that was the 4th Presbyterian on Chicago's Gold Coast, and requested asylum. Chosa was later quoted as saying, They let us into the basement and locked the door. Next morning, they gave us four hours to get out. 
According to Chosa, they were told by police they'd be arrested if they didn't get out of the city. He and his crew moved to Big Bend Lake, a forest preserve in Des Plaines, a suburb about 20 miles northwest of downtown Chicago, and lived in tents. Three weeks later, they received a tip that police were planning to evict them, so they left Big Bend and went to Argonne National Labs in Lamont, Illinois. For reference, Argonne Labs was initially formed to continue Enrico Fermi's work on nuclear reactors as part of the Manhattan Project, the research initiative that developed the first nuclear weapons. It was designated as the first national laboratory in the United States on July 1st, 1946. Growing up within a mile of Argonne Labs, I learned very little of this history. Stupid public school education. Argonne's nuclear research ended in 1994, at which point they shifted to other scientific studies. For reference, Argonne Labs is about 24 and a half miles southwest of downtown Chicago and currently covers 1,700 acres of suburban DuPage County. At Argonne Labs, Chosa and the other Native Americans settled in the abandoned Nike missile site based there. The time spent on the allegedly radioactive land was approximately three weeks. When I talked to my dad earlier this week, he recalled hearing about the plight of the families holed up at the site back then and actually packed up a few bags of kids' clothing to donate and took me along for the trip. I was just a baby then and have no memory of this and of the thousands of stories I've listened to from my father, many of them more than once, I don't think I had ever heard this one. Kind of cool. Chosa and the other protesters left the Argonne missile site voluntarily as they believed they had an agreement with the Chicago Housing Authority for 132 permanent apartments in the uptown neighborhood of Chicago that did not come to fruition. By late August, the protesters were offered temporary housing at Camp Seeger, a summer camp in suburban Naperville that was, at that time, owned by the United Methodist Church. Fun fact, the land on which the camp in Naperville existed was once the hunting grounds of the Potawatomi tribe. The Native Americans lived there until December of 1971 in wooden cabins that were uninsulated. If you've ever spent time in the Chicago area in December, you know how cold it can be. The Methodists who ran the camp reluctantly went to court to get an eviction order as they were concerned for the safety of those living there. I'm sure there were also liability concerns as well. Also in December of 1971, Michael Chosa traveled to Washington, D.C. in an effort to persuade the Nixon administration to formally give up some of the empty buildings at Argonne National Laboratories. The General Services Administration turned down that request, explaining that the site was unsafe due to radioactivity from the laboratory. Carol Warrington whose housing protest first gave rise to the Chicago Indian Village movement, began holding separate protests with friends and later formally split from Siv, stating Chosa had been a divisive force among Chicago Indians. With factions within Siv beginning to crack and many of them feeling Michael Chosa was more about being in the spotlight than helping the cause, Chicago Indian Village was effectively over by summer of 1972, 
two years after making headlines in Chicago with a teepee by Wrigley Field. According to the American Indian Center, the Chicagoland area is now home to over 50,000 Native Americans from over 140 tribes. As it is with most parts in the United States, Native Americans remain the area's longest-term inhabitants. Today, Chicago's largest segments of Native Americans live in the Brighton Park and Lakeview neighborhoods. According to the 1977 documentary, The Divided Trail, A Native American Odyssey, you can actually find it on YouTube, Carol Warrington entered a halfway house for alcoholics in Phoenix before eventually becoming a caseworker helping Native Americans in that area. She also staged protests in a teepee there as well. Michael Chosa eventually returned to the Lac du Flambeau Reservation. According to his 2012 obituary, he was 76 when he passed, preceded in death by his parents, five brothers, and four sisters, and survived by three sisters, one brother, and many nieces and nephews. In 1973, the Forest Preserve District of DuPage County acquired more than 2,400 acres near Argonne National Laboratory, including the former Nike Missile Base, for outdoor recreation and conservation. That area is now known as Waterfall Glen Forest Preserve, and the area where the missiles once sat, south of 91st Street and east of Cass Avenue, is not far from the trailhead on Northgate Road. The American Indian Center moved to the former Ravenswood Masonic Temple on Wilson Avenue near Ashland Avenue in 1966, where it continued its efforts on behalf of the community until 2015, when the group announced it could no longer keep up with maintenance on the aging building. They later sold the building and moved to the city's Albany Park neighborhood in early 2017. The former building was gutted and turned into condos. I do hope you've enjoyed today's episode about the teepee at Wrigley, Native American protests of the 1970s. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or if you have a different topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast, I can be reached by email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. If you would, the next time someone asks if you have any podcast suggestions, please mention this one. We would love to reach new listeners and fans of Chicago history. Get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe. Thanks for listening.